0: Good morning. Can you guys all hear me? Do we need it up a little more? No? Okay. A little bit more? So I don't have to talk like this? (laughs) I don't want to do that. (laughs) Okay. Um, So I'm going to be in Luke chapter 3. If you would like to be there, you may also go to Luke chapter 3. So I am going to read starting in verse 1, and then I'll stop at some point. So it says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetriarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetriarch of Ituria and Trichonitis, and Lysanias, tetriarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that out of these stones... God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then, the crowd asked. John answered, The man with two tunics should share with him who has none, and the one who has food should do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, And what should we do? He replied, Don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. John answered them all I baptize you with water but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, I thank you for just the opportunity to share what you have put on my heart with this congregation. Lord, I pray that that you would just speak through me. Lord, that you would give me the words that you want me to speak. And that you would open our hearts and our ears and our minds, Lord, to the message you have for each one of us. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. Amen. So the title of my sermon, What Are You Advertising? So if your life were a commercial what would you be advertising? So you've got your personality. You've got your attitude. You've got your gifts. Maybe a job. But when you come to mind, when people think of you in that one sentence, I know Mike. He's dot, dot, dot. I know Lori. She's dot, dot, dot. If your life is a commercial, What are people saying about you? And what are you advertising? You'll see where I'm going with this in a minute. So while this kind of doesn't have anything to do with my main topic of being a commercial and what we're advertising, um, the things that stuck out to me in verses 1 and the first half of verse (laughs) 2, sorry. (laughs) My string came undone. Here, we know that Luke is a doctor. And we know that Luke wrote this book and he wrote the book of Acts and that he knew Peter personally, he knew Paul personally. Um, But what I love about the first verse and a half of this chapter is um, he's validating his writing. He is saying, what I am saying is true. And the reason I say that is because When people are telling a fable, they usually start out with once upon a time, and he doesn't do that here, or they speak in generalities, and Luke here is specific. He says, this happened in this year, at this time, at this location, these were the people in power, and you don't do that if you're trying to make something up. So every once in a while with our youth, we will play a game called Two Truths and a Lie. How many of you guys have played Two Truths and a Lie? Nobody. Okay. So what you do is... Oh, no it has. So what you do is you tell two truths about yourself and one lie. And everybody else has to guess which one is the lie. And what's really interesting is the students in our youth group typically can pinpoint the lie and it's usually because the lie is pretty general and the two truths that you say about yourself are typically pretty specific until you get to playing the game a lot and then you realize you have to talk in generalities all the time so um, Just a little side note on that. (laughs) I just thought that was really interesting that here he pinpoints an exact place and time in history. And that proves to us that the gospel is true. It also proves to us that the word of God is true, that this entire Bible is true because it was inspired by God. And if just one portion of it is true, the entire thing is true. So back to what I'm talking about. So before we meet Jesus as as an adult, we meet John the Baptist. And he's this crazy man that's living out in the wilderness and he eats locusts and honey and he dresses in animal skins and he's out there for a long time. And he comes into town to the Jordan River and we find from reading the four different gospels and kind of meshing it all together that where he's baptizing is a place called Bethany beyond the Jordan. And I kind of mapped it out to figure out where it was, and it's about 40 miles from Jerusalem. And so anybody who went to hear him speak, if they were coming from Jerusalem, would literally have to walk an entire day because it would take a good 10 hours to walk there. And with small children or someone who can't walk as fast, it could take even longer. And so we know that John's message was really compelling. And he pulled people from all over the region to come to him to hear him speak. And he was pretty direct. He did not mince words. But he was so captivating, people stayed. And they listened to him speak. The Bible tells us that the people that came to hear him speak, we read in this text that the crowd included sinners, and tax collectors and soldiers but it also included some of the Pharisees and so you think about that the Pharisees were in Jerusalem and walked an entire day to hear what this person had to say and it, I don't think it was because they were really interested it's because he was teaching something that was against what the temple was teaching what they were teaching and so He was teaching, John was teaching, a baptism of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. So if you look at verse 3, John says he went into all the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And this was completely contrary to everything that the temple, that the Pharisees were teaching. They had built this entire system around You could only get forgiveness by coming to the temple and doing the sacrifices. And here John is saying, no, that's done. That's over with. You don't need to do that anymore. And he's telling them, you need to come to me and I'm going to baptize you and call you to repentance of your sins so that you can begin to live out what you're supposed to be doing the life that you're supposed to live out. His message was designed to get people ready for the Messiah, the coming Messiah. In essence, he was saying something new is coming and the old way is gone. And you need to change the way you're doing things or you're going to miss it. And that didn't sit well with the temple establishment. Luke then goes on to quote Isaiah about the forerunner to the Messiah. And he's actually quoting this about himself. But when you jump down to verse 7, the first thing he says to the entire crowd is, you brood of vipers. So that would be like someone coming up to you that you didn't know and looking at you and saying something really vile and calling you a really bad name or something. And you'd be like, what? So different commentaries that I read had different takes on this. Um, One said that he was speaking directly to the Pharisees that were there. And a different commentary I read said that he was speaking to the entire crowd that was there. But either way, it was pretty harsh. It was pretty bad. And he says, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. He's telling them that if you want to be right with God and prepared for what God is about to do, you have to change your evil ways and walk your talk. Traditional religion is over. The days of an internalized religion is over. The way that it's been done is gone and something new is coming. And if you're not willing to repent and change your ways, when that new comes... And when God shows up, you're going to miss it because you're not living in sync with it. So he's telling the crowd, the old ways are just that old. They're gone. It's time for something new. And he's preparing the way for that new something that's coming. And then continuing on in verse 8, he knows exactly what they're thinking. They're thinking, and do not say he says and do not say to yourselves we have abraham as our father so they're saying hey we're good we've got abraham but john the baptist is saying nope that's not enough what do you guys think this means for us today possibly it means you can no longer be a casual christian You can no longer be a consumer-related Christian looking at what's in it for me. What am I going to get out of it? We can no longer be marginally committed to our faith. We can't sit in our holy huddles and be apathetic in our relationship. He's telling us we need to do something. But he's also saying, accepting Jesus and saying the sinner's prayer is a good thing, but it's not enough. That's not going to help you in your relationship with with Christ. You can go to church every Sunday, and you can do all those good things, but it's not going to cut the mustard anymore. And this is the parallel to him saying, being children of Abraham, because there's a lot of people who say they're Christians but they sure don't live like it. And we see that a lot, unfortunately. John says that's great, but if you're not careful, even though you are a God-fearer and a God-believer, you're going to miss what God is doing and become an enemy of God. And later in the Bible, when you look at the Judeans that were standing in the crowd crying out, crucify him, when Jesus was on trial. And that's why I chose the song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us This Morning, because it talks in that about it was my sin that held him there. But how many of those Judeans that were standing there screaming, Crucify him, actually listened to John the Baptist and actually followed Jesus and saw the miracles? but because they didn't do anything about their relationship and they didn't do what John said and they didn't do what Jesus did, that they missed it. And that's like following the crowd in our lives. It's going with the flow because it's the easy way. He's saying produce fruit, not belief. Belief is required, but when you look at James chapter 2, it's, he says James says, show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God, good, even the demons believe that and shudder. So while belief is required, if you don't do anything with that belief, I don't want to say it, but you're just like a demon. They believe too. But you've got to do something. You can have it all worked out theologically, but if you're not producing fruit, you're missing the point. And what do I mean by produce fruit? Do something. John was not discounting being related to Abraham, and I'm not discounting anybody saying they're a Christian. But that's just the beginning. You have to do something else. You can't just sit there. And I don't, I don't think any one of us wants to find ourselves at some point just going with the flow and being apathetic in our relationship and figuratively crying out, crucify him. Maybe not intentionally, but don't get swayed by the crowd if you're not, and not nurture your faith. An internalized vertical religion is over. John is saying, and it's time for something new. And that time for change is now. It's here. When your faith is internalized only and you're not doing something, you run the risk of your faith becoming stagnant and lifeless. You become consumers only and unintentionally a what's in it for me only believer. Your faith starts to die and you don't even know it. And I've actually seen this happen to people where I have known people who have been on fire for the Lord. And then they start missing a couple Sundays. And then they start missing their quiet time that they used to do daily. And one day turns into two days, turns into a week, turns into a couple of weeks. And then it's no longer important. And then their faith becomes stagnant. And their faith is dying. And then it's lifeless. And then when something else swoops in and takes the place of that, that's what fills the void. And it kills their faith. And then you see them turning a different direction. So we know John's audience got the message. In verse 10, the crowd asks him, so what should we do? And I imagine they were probably expecting some kind of a religious answer, probably something that was a little bit difficult, maybe something um, hard. But instead, his answer surprises them. He says in verse 11, the man with two tunics should share with him who has none, and the one who has food should do the same. And they're like, huh? You want us to share? You get everybody all worked up. You call us brood of vipers. And then you're telling us all we have to do is share? And he said, yes, share. If you see a need, meet it. If you have an abundance of something, share it. It's not hard but it requires work. They got themselves all worked up over something that really wasn't super important to God. They did it, and it was tradition, but they missed what God was doing. And so he's saying, yes, share. If you have extra clothing, give it away. If you have food, and food at that time was scarce. Food couldn't be preserved well. They didn't have refrigeration. And so food was a a pretty rare commodity that you didn't like to give it away. But John's saying, give it away. If you've got a little bit more, give it away. He said, meet a need. If you see somebody who has a need and you can meet it, meet it. It doesn't matter who that person is. Because God's about to meet a need that the entire world has that we don't even know we have. And if you're not living it out, you're going to miss it. So then we hear from the tax collectors. And I don't know if you guys have ever noticed, but in the Gospels, whenever it talks about the sinners, it talks about sinners and tax collectors. So the tax collectors were like lower than the sinners because they had their own special category. And um, (laughs) so they were probably... I would guess they were probably lower than the sinners because they were second to the sinners and the tax collectors. So in verses 12 and 13, it says, The tax collectors also came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? And he says, don't collect any more than you are required to. So the tax collectors were Jewish people. And how many of you guys have seen The Chosen? So The Chosen is a great series, and I think they depicted Matthew, the tax collector, in a really good way. He's quirky, um, and I, the interaction between him and Peter um, is great, because even when Matthew joins the disciples, Peter still has this issue with him. And so the tax collectors were Jews and they did what was normal. All of the tax collectors collected extra. So they gave part of it to Rome, which is what they were required to do, but they also charged extra so that they could pocket it and put it in their own treasury for themselves. And so they were stealing from the people. And so John says, don't collect more than what you need, what you're required to. And they're like, "Huh?" And he's like, "Stop stealing. That's what you're doing is you're stealing from people." Stop stealing. If you see a need meet it, stop stealing. He says, do something different. Do something normal. Do something notable. Do something just. Do what is just, not what you can justify. Because they could justify taking extra. Because they never got in trouble. No one ever checked. But John's saying, only take what you're required to, and don't take any more. So then we have the soldiers. The soldiers in verse 14 are actually auxiliary soldiers, meaning they are not Roman soldiers. They're not citizens of Rome. They are actually people, men that Rome has hired from the surrounding region to actually protect the people. And they work for the Roman government, but they are not Roman. And there's a lot of animosity between the Judeans and the Jews and these soldiers, not just because they're enforcing Roman law, but also because there was a lot of racism going on between these people groups. So the surprising thing is, is that they show up. So they've obviously heard about John and what he's saying is really compelling. And so they're like, well, let's go listen to this guy speak. I imagine they probably had never been to temple, most of them. Maybe some of them have. Um, I imagine that some of them um, probably have never even read the Torah, if not most of them or all of them. So they show up, and they ask John, well, what should we do? And he says, don't extort people in am I at? Verse 14. It says, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. So Rome was paying them to protect the people, but then they would go and tell people, well, I can do this for you, but it's going to cost you a little bit extra. Or I can protect you here, but it's going to cost you a little bit extra. Or they'll do something and they'll say, and now you owe me money. And John's saying, don't be greedy. Don't ask them to pay you for something that Rome is already paying you for. He tells them the same thing he tells the tax collectors. Do what is just, not what you can justify. Because there's someone coming into the world who's going to choose mercy and not justice, who's going to willingly go to the cross and allow his Father in heaven to take out on him what he could justify taking out on you. So this is completely unprecedented. No wonder the religious leaders were infuriated with John. It's completely upside down and backwards from everything that the temple has been teaching the people. And Jesus affirms this in Matthew 20, 18, when he said, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So if you want to catch a glimpse of Jesus in the world, you need to live like Jesus, and you'll see it. Show compassion, show mercy, give freely, and share in abundance. In verses 15 through 18, we see where, I'll just read it. The people were waiting expectantly, and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. So the crowd thought that John John was possibly the Messiah. But he tells them, I'm not even worthy to tie his sandal straps, meaning he is not even worthy to be Jesus' slave. But none of us are. But John tells the the crowd to get ready, and they need to do something. And he's telling us the same thing, that we need to get ready and we need to do something. So circling back to the title of my sermon, if your life is a commercial, what are you advertising? But you know what? You are a commercial. We are all advertising something, whether you're a believer in Jesus Christ or not. But as a believer in Jesus Christ, you've been branded. I'm going to show you. Turn to, your, to Matthew chapter 5. So in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. In verse 14, he says, you are the light of the world. And in verse 16, he says, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your father in heaven. So we don't get to decide whether our life is a commercial, but we do get to decide what we're going to advertise. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, what version of faith are you advertising? Are you advertising the internal, vertical faith that's comfortable, that's non-confrontational, that thinks only about me? Or are you advertising the faith that's external and uncomfortable? The one another do for others Jesus version of faith the version of christianity that does stuff that helps others that meets a need doing's messy doing is tough and doing is deep and what do i mean when i say doing is deep i want you guys to picture a swimming pool so in most swimming pools you have a shallow end and a deep de- deep end and i say most swimming pools because when i was growing up we had a swimming pool in our backyard but it was shallow, deep, shallow, and the deep end was only five feet. So we could walk across the entire pool. Um, So I'm talking about a regular pool that's, you know, shallow on one end, three to four feet, and you're going down to nine, ten feet on the other end. So when you're in the shallow end, you really don't have to do a lot. You can touch bottom when you're standing. Some people can even touch bottom when they're kneeling if the pool's really shallow. You don't have to really exert any energy. It's pretty safe, pretty comfortable. But in the deep end, you're going to have to do something. You're going to have to exert energy because you don't touch bottom. You're in over your head. You need to tread water. And that requires work, and it requires learning, and that's where Jesus is inviting us into the deep end, because that's where he is, and that's where the world is changed. It's beyond our ability, because we can't do it on our own, and if you follow Jesus into the deep end, amazing things are going to happen, and you cannot lose faith when you're treading water and asking God to come to your rescue. And that's where you're going to see God work. Doing is messy, Doing is costly. But doing is life-changing, and you will find joy in the midst of it. Sometimes you just need to make yourself available. And when God calls you to do something, you just need to do it. And if you continue to be a hearer only and a consumer only, just be careful because your faith is possibly dying and you run the risk of losing your faith altogether. Believers didn't change the world. Doers did the men and women whose lives advertise the kingdom of God, the men and women whose lives advertise thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Those are the men and women who are changing the world. And that's where we should all be. So I'm going to show you a video right now. Yes. Youth pastor video. Um, we do videos in youth ministry so just a a short like 2 minute clip but it kind of gets to my point
1: What's the deal? What? I told you three to clean your room. I know. Well, I'm glad you know. It's a mess. I memorized what you said. What do you mean you memorized what I said? Every word. But you memorized that I told you to clean your room. Yes. And I learned how to say it in Spanish and in Hebrew. And if you want to know how to say it in Spanish, it's yo libio el dormitorio. That's that's what that's Spanish. 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 Okay. And I um read a book. It's called Five Ways to Clean Your Room. It just really helped me to understand like what you said, and it was really life changing. It was awesome. And I had friends from my small group over. It was so good. We talked about like the importance of a clean room and like what it's like to have a clean room and like how you should have a clean room. It was. Uh, so good. It was absolutely incredible. And Susie came over, you remember? Yeah. She came over and we, like, mapped it out on a sheet of paper on what my room would have been like if I, when I did clean it. And it looked really good. Like, everything was really precise. Uh. Okay, well, um. Keep up the, (laughs) keep up the good work. Thanks. I love you. Keep holding me accountable.
0: Okay, so, am I on? Okay, so I just, I love that video because it really hits home. If you guys didn't hear it very well, um, so her dad told her to clean her room and he catches her sleeping on, or laying on the couch on her phone. And he says, why didn't you clean your room? And she says, well, I memorized what you said. She says, I even learned how to say it in Spanish and in Hebrew. And then she said she met with her small group about it, and they talked about it, and they mapped it out. All those great things. And unfortunately, that's the way a lot of Christians are. They read good books. And they go to small group, and they talk about all the great things that they need to be doing. And then they go home and they do nothing. And so I just want to challenge you guys this week to just pray about what it is that God wants you to do and ask him to show you what he wants you to do. And it could be something really small, like just calling somebody on the phone. Or it could be really big, like providing something that someone needs that you have extra of. So... um That's all I have. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for the opportunity to um, do your work. Lord, I thank you that you ask us to step out of our comfort zone, to jump into the deep end, and to allow you to help us through the difficult times, Lord, when you ask us to do something and we don't know what to do. And so I pray, Lord, that this week we would each Take a challenge to do something for someone else and to meet a need. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. So I'm going to have Tina and Will.